Ladies and gentlemen, we're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years, and we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state than when we came here 11 and a half years ago. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. Hello. Well, I hope you've all had a good week and that if you went out to protest, the guide in my last episode was useful to you. Keep at it, because as you'll hear later, protesting isn't something that's pointless. Rather, when done well, it can cause considerable change. And regardless of what you might see on the news, it doesn't even have to ever descend into violence. I'm conscious that in my last couple of episodes, I haven't talked much about what I've been up to or how I am. But sometimes I think the world around us demands something more important than trivialities around my failure to find a job or the number of words I've written on my upcoming stories. That said, next week I'll talk more about one particular story I've written for an anthology. We're closing in on publication dates and it's really exciting! But for this week, let's continue talking about protests. Now, I'm British, and while at the moment there are Black Lives Matter protests happening here in the UK, the majority of the action is taking place in the USA – And understandably so. Some people might take this as proof that backs up their belief that the British are a reserved bunch who wouldn't take to the streets even if a literal Nazi rocked up as Prime Minister. And there's an argument to suggest that much of Middle England would actually quite like that scenario as long as it didn't affect them or their house prices personally. That someone like Nadine Doris can be elected with a large majority does nothing but back this theory up. I am, of course, and I have to say this for legal reasons, not saying that Nadine Doris is a Nazi. And it's true that we don't have the history of bloody and violent revolution, most notably in 1848 when monarchs were being cast aside across Europe. We had the Chartist movement, who managed to gather somewhere around 100,000 people peacefully into a muddy field in London and presented a highly dubious petition to Parliament that was laden with so many inaccuracies as to be left out of the Commons. In more recent times, one only has to look to France in 1968. It's still a cultural watershed in that country, where seven weeks of protests and strikes took the country to the brink of actual civil war and revolution. And of course then we have the events two decades later in the communist states of Central and Eastern Europe, where mass protests did cause the downfall of governments and changes in entire political systems. Although only in Romania was the revolution marked by a, shall we say, more traditional method of government change and on Christmas Day too, which is, you know, quite ironic. However, that's not to say the British can't revolt when the need arises. So, today on Storytime with the Barefoot Backpacker, here are some examples where we took to the streets to instigate pseudo-revolutionary change, or fight strongly enough for a cause that the mood and policy of the country veered. Firstly, let's go back a couple of hundred years to a time when even the country name was different, and when politics was a very different beast indeed. It's 1830. 
year of the first fee-paying entirely mechanical intercity passenger railway service in the world between Liverpool and Manchester. Also the year of the publishing of the Book of Mormon and one of several years in the century in which there were revolutions across Europe, the most notable being in Belgium, which declared independence almost by accident from the Netherlands, and of course in France, where Louis XIX holds one of those technical records as one of the shortest ever reigning kings. 20 minutes was the time between his father's abdication and his own, most of which seems to have been spent, in stereotypical French style, contemplating the infinite. Yeah, it's interesting to note that we're taught in schools that the French monarchy was overthrown in the French Revolution of 1789. Well, it's true, they just did it a few times afterwards. Anyway, the political system in Britain was, uh, it was a little old-fashioned. There are two houses of parliament, as now, the Lords, which were the landowners, and the Commons, which were the MPs. The Lords traditionally had most of the power, but things were swinging firmly towards the Commons. There were largely two parties, the traditional and strictly religious Tory party and the slightly more flexible Whig party. There were 658 MPs elected from across the whole country, including at that point what is now the Republic of Ireland, and there were two different types of constituency they could be elected for, and this is quite important. There were county seats and there were borough seats, and interestingly, this distinction still exists in the UK, but the major difference now seems to only be the amount of money that you get as an election budget for each candidate. County seats were simple. The country was, and still is, sort of, divided into counties, and each county would usually elect two MPs. Think of them as huge constituencies. There was a property qualification, only people who owned a certain amount of property, which was valued at £2 a year. This was set in 1430 and never adjusted, because, I don't know, when you're that rich, you don't really care about economic theory, maybe. Could vote, or stand as a candidate. The electorate in county seats grew over time because of inflation, because they never changed the requirement to vote, and stood at around 190,000, estimated. There was no registration of voters in these days. The total electorate in 1831 was around 516,000. Bear in mind the population of the country was around 24 million. So you can see there's a large number of people that were disenfranchised. Borough seats were much more complicated. Boroughs were generally old market towns, having been given a borough charter by the monarch in times past, and there were several different types of them, each with a different voting regulation. Just because someone was qualified to vote in, say, Northampton, didn't mean that someone with exactly the same income and demographic was allowed to vote in Cambridge. Again, very often these seats elected two MPs. In addition, their application had never really changed from about the um, 1600s. Uh, this meant that, on the one hand, you had places like Gatton in Surrey, which, due to their restrictive tax-based franchise, usually less than 10 people out of the population of 135 had the right to vote. Yep, that was a big constituency. Sometimes this even dropped to a mere two. And this meant, of course, that as the borough elected two MPs, effectively each elector voted in one MP. On the other hand, you had entire new towns, mainly in the Midlands and the North, that had no representation at all outside of the county boroughs. Think of places like Sheffield, like Leeds and Manchester. They're the best examples of this. Manchester's population in 1831 stood at around 250,000 people, while Glasgow had virtually no representation at all, since none of its citizens seemed to even qualify for the county seat property qualification. The most notorious example, the most famous, is the constituency of Old Sarum in Wiltshire. This is a borough seat that elected two MPs in 1830. 
and it had once been a notable place. It was the original home of what later became Salisbury Cathedral. The only slight snag is that the village had been entirely moved and mostly destroyed. In 1322. You may well ask, but if nobody lived there, how could it elect MPs? And the answer lies in the weirdness of voter qualification. You had to own land there. And this led to many constituencies across the country effectively being controlled by the local lord who would sell off parcels of enough land to people he trusted, who then became voters in that constituency. And then in return, obviously, vote for the candidates the landlord suggested. Since the qualification was land ownership rather than residency, this also meant people could vote twice in different locations, and frequently did. Elections took place over the course of weeks rather than hours as it is now, so it was easy to travel between places and vote twice. And in addition, voting was not secret. Votes were cast generally by a show of hands, or by marking your ballot paper in full view of everyone, including, importantly, the local lord or one of his lackeys. This all led to several factors that fundamentally undermined democracy. Firstly, that many elections were uncontested. Old Sarum, for instance, hadn't had a contested election since 1751. And even that was only because the landowner had an argument with the local lord about the candidate's viability. Secondly, even in potentially contested elections, it would be generally known who was going to win. There was no secret to the opinions and connections of the local landowner, especially given the public nature of the vote. In some places, however, the opposite problem occurred. You had more voters under less control, and it was harder to coerce people into voting your way. So rather than the stick, they used the carrot. People sold their land in prestigious boroughs for hundreds of pounds, even if it was only worth just above the eligibility threshold, because a vote in Parliament was priceless. In other places, especially in the counties and the larger borough seats, voters were regularly bribed with financial or material reward. In Aylesbury in 1761, for instance, the candidate won simply by paying the voters. In other places, voters were bribed with things like beer. I mean, it might encourage a larger turnout, and some pubs in the UK today do serve as polling stations, but that's not quite the same thing. Note too that travelling to vote was common. In the county seats, voting took place in the county town rather than in local polling stations. So even the act of voting itself was a long and expensive task, which voters were expected to be paid back for by their candidate of choice. The democratic system therefore needed a bit of reforming. And by a bit, what I actually mean is turn into a democratic system. Unsurprisingly, the concept of reform wasn't well supported by Parliament, Requests to even debate it were rejected out of hand. And demand for reform in the country was growing, not least amongst the new northern middle classes, who felt, you know, a bit left out of the system, as you can imagine. But it wasn't until a most unlikely alliance between them and some very hard-right Tories, who were scared of Catholics, that any meaningful attempt was made. See, until 1829, Catholics weren't allowed to become MPs because yeah, we fought a couple of civil wars over this very subject in the previous couple of hundred years. But having annexed Ireland in 1801, there was now a considerable Catholic minority in the country. And the fear of revolution from that quarter was deemed to be more pressing than anything else, especially after a prominent Catholic was elected in a by-election in 1828, forcing the issue. The trouble was, by allowing Catholics to become MPs, the fear amongst the hard Tory right was that they would come to dominate Parliament unless they could find a way to increase the number of traditional Anglican MPs in return. And the only way to do this, they felt, would be to tap into the largely religious, industrialised middle classes who currently didn't have the vote. 
Unsurprisingly, not all of the Tory party agreed with this, especially in the Lords. Despite winning the general election of 1830, the Tory PM, a chap by the name of Arthur Wellesley, 1st Duke of Wellington, yes, that one, refused to countenance any kind of reform. The party turned on him and two weeks later he was ousted. Hardline Tories preferring the Whig leader, Charles Grey, the second Earl Grey, yes, that one too, to push through reform. While that first Reform Act passed the Commons, the Lords rejected it. Grey wanted to prove a point, so called a snap general election. This was a success. The Whigs walked it, and pretty much the only Tories left as MPs were those who had been bought there. Grey brought forward a second Reform Act that skipped through the Commons quicker than and easier than a barefoot elf through the forest, and the feeling was that the Lords, seeing just how much support there was in the country for reform, would abstain rather than voting against and allow the bill to grudgingly pass. And indeed, many of them did. But the bill was blocked in part by what were known as the Lords Spiritual, the Anglican bishops who, as the country was legally religious, were entitled to a voice and a vote in Parliament. This, shall we say, did not go down well in the country. The bill was defeated on the 8th of October. By the evening of the following day, Nottingham and Derby were both in the grip of riots, whilst huge protests took place in Bristol by the end of the month. The most notable person in Bristolian political life, Charles Wetherill, was a noted anti-reformist and MP for a rotten borough in Yorkshire. And this culminated in around 200 deaths and £300,000 worth of damage, which, at the time, was an immense amount of money. The riots in Bristol were also particularly notable as they took place amid a backdrop of council ineptitude and disorganisation and reluctance on the part of the military to openly get involved. They feared a repeat of the massacre on the scale of that at Peterloo Square in Manchester some 12 years earlier that this time might spark a full-scale revolution. Now, you'd think that the public's reaction to the failing of the Reform Bill would encourage Parliament to pass it on its third attempt. And you'd be... wrong. Although the Third Reform Bill passed the Commons with an even larger majority, the Lords delayed it, they argued every little pedantic point over it, and generally tried to make its passage as difficult as possible. What happened next is a little nerdy to explain politically, but in short demonstrates a fair amount of brinkmanship. Earl Grey figured that the best way of resolving the issue in the Lords was to create a lot of new pro-reformist Lords to force the bill through because this was the 1800s and flooding Parliament with a bunch of your supporters was a perfectly normal thing to do. The only person who could create new lordships was the king. The king did not want reform and refused. So on the 9th of May 1832, Earl Grey, despite a huge majority in the Commons, resigned on principle. The king then invited the leader of the Tories, the Duke of Wellington still, to form a government. And bear in mind that the Tory party was in quite the minority. Now, Within podcast memory, we've had the situation of a Tory government in the UK having a huge minority and still managing to pass legislation through. One of the annoying abilities of right-wing governments is how, despite everything, they seem to manage to survive whatever Parliament throws at them. Now, I'm in no way comparing Boris Johnson to the Duke of Wellington. Johnson might like that comparison, but everyone else who knows even remotely a little bit about both will raise an eyebrow at any attempt to compare. In any case, however, the Duke and I really don't believe I'm about to say this, especially given that I'm genuinely recording this on the anniversary of the battle, met his Waterloo. I'm sorry, I'm not a comedian. You don't listen to this podcast for the jokes. So, the Duke of Wellington tried to form an effective government for five days. But, 
by the 15th of May he'd given up. The king had no option but to reappoint Earl Grey to the post of Prime Minister and acquiesce to his demands. Beaten, the Duke persuaded enough lords to abstain from the next passage of the Reform Act and a month later it became law. The UK had taken a first huge step to becoming the modern democracy that it is today and the rotten boroughs became history. The tipping point was the state of the country. Boris Johnson may have run a government with at one point a minority of 43, but there was never any actual danger of him being overthrown in a popular revolution. And despite what I said at the start of this tale, those five days when the Duke of Wellington was trying to form a government were very different from the modern situation of people writing passive-aggressive tweets and commenting on articles in The Guardian. Rather, the days of May, as they were later known, were a very different beast. It's not even that very much happened in those five days, compared to what I'll talk about in the next couple of tasks. But after all the rioting in the provincial cities earlier on in the process, it was more of a fear. In Birmingham, a pro-reform group, the Birmingham Political Union, had been pushing for change for a number of years, and they reacted to Wellington's appointment with disdain. 200,000 people turned up for a peaceful protest, but the sheer numbers worried the establishment. In London, protesters marched with banners saying, Stop the Duke! Go for gold! Not a reference to a late 80s television quiz show, but rather an attempt to disrupt the economy by withdrawing gold savings from the bank, preventing the government from obtaining income. Around £1.5 million worth of gold was withdrawn in that week alone, partly as a result of direct action, and partly because some landowners feared a revolution was imminent and felt they needed to protect themselves. You know, like people do with toilet paper. Though, thinking about it, I guess gold is washable and recyclable. The other notable thing was that the protests were organised, structured and persistent. This wasn't a time for riots, rather this was a time for repeated demands by a large number of peaceful protesters. It's believed some 200 protests were held around the country and 300 separate petitions for reform given to Parliament in those five days of May alone. In the face of such agitation, allowing the Reform Act to pass was preferable to the alternative. As a final side note, it must be said that the Reform Act of 1832 wasn't actually that impressive. It cleared the shit, but it would take five further acts over the course of the next 120 plus years to obtain a universal suffrage and a standard level of representation. For example, universities continued to elect MPs on their own in Great Britain until 1950 and in Northern Ireland until 1969, meaning people could still vote twice in an election within living memory. Also, by standardising the voting qualifications nationwide, some people in the more eccentric borough seats actually lost the ability to vote including, theoretically, women, since it was never formally established that women couldn't vote until 1832. But overall, the electorate increased by about 60%, and many of the weirder foibles of the election were abolished, redistributing seats, introducing voter registration, and allowing multiple polling stations, as well as reducing the duration of elections from weeks to two days, all helped to stabilise the concept of a general election. One thing that wasn't implemented, though, was the idea of a secret ballot. This took till 1872 to become law. What the 1832 Act did do, though, was prove that reform was possible. It was the first step to change centuries of malpractice, and it was achieved in part through the power of people in standing up and demanding change. Let's go forward a couple of hundred years now to a protest that's of a slightly different type and unlike most protests in history, took place on a specific day rather than over the course of weeks or months. But it's one that's definitely relevant to the current world circumstance. 
I refer to what was dubbed the Battle of Cable Street that took place on the 4th of October 1936 in the Shadwell-Whitechapel-Wapping area of London. Now, as you'll appreciate, this was quite an angsty time, shall we say. The Spanish Civil War had just kicked off about two and a half months earlier, pitching the Nationalists, which were pseudo-fascists, the military and the church, against Republicans, who were the Socialist government, Spanish regionalists and some modicum of anarchists. Fascist Italy had just conquered Ethiopia. Nazi Germany was openly breaking the terms of the Treaty of Versailles by rearming themselves and reoccupying the Rhineland. That the French didn't react militarily seems to have been a combination of lack of finance for a war, coupled with vastly overestimating by possibly a factor of 10 just how many German troops moved in. But it did give Germany much more confidence in their own military position. While in New Zealand, the last known thylacine died, thus bringing to extinction this iconic species. The rise in the far right across Europe was being mirrored here in the UK, albeit with much less success. Perhaps surprisingly, given how history might well view the last couple of hundred years of specifically English culture and society, but still. There were a number of right-wing parties, pressure groups and the like in the period that were active, but the largest and most famous was the British Union of Fascists, led by Oswald Mosley, a former politician, but now possibly more noted for being the father of Max Mosley, the former president of the FIA, which, amongst other things, is Formula One motor racing's governing body. Oswald Mosley could be described as an opportunist, a brilliant orator and economic thinker, and at one point even being touted as a potential leader of the Labour Party, he started out life as a Conservative MP in 1918, before switching sides over a difference of opinion around policy around Ireland. However, despite being made a minister without portfolio in the Labour government of 1929, he quickly fell out with his peers again. He felt he wasn't being listened to. He lost his seat in the 31 election and set up a new party, helpfully titled The New Party, before visiting Italy and deciding that in fact what he really wanted to be was Mussolini's boiled beef boy. The NUF was formed in 1932. It had some early successes, gaining a few councillors elected. Two members of the party at this point even later became Conservative MPs after the war and gaining the brief support of that bulwark of liberal journalism, the Daily Mail. This, by the way, is where the famous headline of Hurrah for the Black Shirts came from. Though in a surprising defence of the paper, this seems to have been born more out of a mutual hatred of communism than an actual support for Mosley. They dropped him before the 1935 election. Not much of a defence, mind, because A, they still saw Adolf Hitler as a man worth admiring, and B, this is the Daily Mail, so fuck them anyway. However, as the party fell more towards traditional anti-Semitism rather than cutting-edge economic policy, their support amongst the middle classes waned, and it became more of a training ground for what you might call foot soldiers. Not long after the party's formation, Mosley created a troop of what some may call stewards and other may call thugs. These were the Fascist Defence Force, or the FDF, and provided security for BUF events. They served as Mosley's bodyguards, because evidently he felt his policies required some. Can't imagine why. And they were used for violent marches. They wore a uniform of black shirts and black trousers, presumably meant to mimic similar uniforms in Italy and Germany, and they were involved in small riots and affrays in places as far apart as Stockton-on-Tees and Worthing. Perhaps unsurprisingly, one area of strong support for the BUF was the less affluent working-class areas of inner-city East London, places like Bethnal Green and Shoreditch. These were also areas which, even then, had a relatively large proportion of immigrants, and Jews, both of which were anathema to the BUF. 
In order to boost his popularity, and to celebrate the fourth anniversary of the founding of the party, Mosley arranged for his party and his associated FDF to march through the streets of the area and give speeches to their supporters, to arouse them, but also to remind them that their economic distress was because of the Jews, just like the people whose streets they were due to march through. You can see where this is headed. Even in the days before the march was due to take place, tensions were getting high. Local residents had petitioned the Home Secretary to prevent the march taking place. He refused, and authorised the use of several thousand policemen to clear the streets and allow the march to take place. Some of the policemen were mounted on horseback. Indeed, it's believed the vast majority of the entire Metropolitan Police Mounted Regiment were present. Does any of this sound vaguely familiar? In response, the local East End population mobilised. Although the majority of the streets the march was due to pass through were Jewish, their numbers were bolstered by members of other local communities also affected by Mosley's rhetoric, particularly the Irish, with other support from communists and other socialist groups specifically brought in from elsewhere in London. They erected barricades, including, it's believed, a tram or a lorry, witness statements vary, that was deliberately crashed or stopped in such a way as to block one of the streets. They armed themselves with sticks, rocks, broken pieces of furniture, pretty much anything they could lay their hands on, and they physically blocked not just Cable Street, but many of the surrounding side roads. Witnesses put an estimate on the number of defenders of Cable Street as upwards of 200,000, all shouting slogans like, No Parasan, they shall not pass, which was a slogan taken directly from the Spanish Civil War. In the event, the march never really took place. Rather, when faced with such a hostile onslaught, Mosley wisely pulled away and his troop wandered west instead, through London city centre and towards Hyde Park. But that doesn't tell the story of the battle itself, which was largely won between the local population on the barricades and not the fascists, but rather with the police. See, as mentioned, the police were there to ensure the march could take place without trouble. Much of the violence, the destruction that the battles brought, was done when the police attempted to remove the barricades from the streets. There was fighting from both sides, defenders threw stones and full chamber pots at the police, which was a bit shitty of them, who retaliated with baton charges and riding into the crowds to try and scatter them. The skirmish only lasted a couple of hours before the fascists withdrew, taking the police with them. In total, around 170 people were injured across all sides, and it's believed around 150 defenders were arrested. The effects of the battle were quite marked. Within three months of the battle, the government, through the Public Order Act 1936, specifically created as a result of the Battle of Cable Street, banned political organisations in the UK from not only having uniforms, but also from having their own police or military-style groupings, so no longer could parties use black shirt-type security. It also forced political organisations to ask police permission before they could march, making a repeat of such an incident much less likely. Although in the short term the now demilitarised BUF became a little more respectable and saw an increase in support amongst the middle classes once again, it never reached the heights it saw in the mid-30s, and within three years, membership down to 20,000, it had been banned anyway, and Mosley himself imprisoned as a war precaution. Although he dabbled in politics after the war, he was pretty much a spent force and ended up buggering off to Paris to write. Interestingly, as a footnote, this Act of Parliament was invoked as recently as 2016, when two of the leaders of Britain First, a noted uh, fascist organisation, were arrested after a march in Luton for wearing branded green Britain First sweatshirts. Same shit, different decade. <laughs>
My final tale is something that happened much more recently, within my lifetime even. And while at the age of 14 I was fully aware of the what, I was much less aware of the why. Though this is tempered by my somewhat mollycoddled upbringing. Seeing a protest that indirectly leads to the downfall of a political leader is something I tended to associate in foreign countries. And indeed, only a few months earlier, this had been, as I stayed, the common theme across Central and Eastern Europe. But in a sense, that's kind of exactly what happened here in the UK. The year is 1990. There's change across the continent as totalitarian regimes fell like trees under the onslaught of Brazilian corporations. Generation X were lost in a fog of illicit substances and rave music. And England's men's football team had the first of two reminders in the decade that the phrase, it ain't over till the fat lady sings, refers to German opera. The UK was run by a Conservative government, centre-right, with, at the time, a fetish for privatisation and individualism rather than community spirit. The Prime Minister was, of course, Margaret Thatcher, the UK's first female Prime Minister, although, as an aside, she didn't appear to do much for women's rights or advancement. In her entire time in office, she only appointed one other woman to a cabinet-level post, Baroness Young, who seems to have viewed the LGBT community in much the same way as the average South African Prime Minister viewed the black community, and only promoted a handful of other women into minor government positions. Anyway, Thatcher had by now been Prime Minister for nearly 11 years, running a government with a pretty healthy majority in Parliament, and pretty much all the policies they'd gone into the decade promising had been fulfilled. Despite being electorally popular, there was a large subset of the population who despised her and everything that she stood for. She was quite a divisive figure, arguably the most divisive Prime Minister in the post-war era. One of the groups of people that didn't like her were the Labour-run local councils that controlled many of the larger cities and industrialised urban areas. Local councils were, and are, responsible for local taxation that funds local council services like refuse collection, transport services, libraries, etc., but the taxation itself is mandated and controlled by central government. The existing system in place at the time of taxation was based on the rateable, rentable effectively, value of property, and it had been in place since at least 1601, but the Conservative government thought it was old-fashioned and not fit for purpose. Their plan was to introduce a flat-rate tax based on people, not property, and force local councils to set and collect it themselves. This was a huge change as it meant more people would be liable to pay this tax than previously. Whereas before it was house-driven, so the bigger your house, the more household paid, now it was people-driven, so the more people you had living in the house, the more you paid, regardless of the value of the home. This meant, of course, that small families in larger houses, typical Conservative voters, paid less, while larger families in smaller houses, often in labour areas, paid more overall. The community charge, as it was officially known, was implemented in Scotland first as a trial run in 1989 and in England and Wales a year later. What followed was one of the largest grassroots campaigns of my lifetime, encompassing both civil disobedience and active protest. The slogan, can't pay, won't pay, became mainstream. A series of pressure groups and community unions were formed to challenge the tax and encourage mass non-payment and obfuscation, making it as difficult as possible to be arrested, never mind brought to the courts and convicted. Once the tax was implemented, local councils found it hard to collect because so many people refused to pay. In some areas, it suggested upwards of 30% of people liable were avoiding paying in some way or another. Indeed, one MP for Labour, Terry Fields, was jailed for two months for refusing to pay. That said, he was on the very left wing of the party and was expelled from it before the next election for being too far away from Labour policy. 
There is a whole story to be told of the militant tendency group in the 1980s, but that's a bit too political even for this podcaster, despite growing up in Liverpool during the period. Some councils even stopped chasing people up for the community charge because the costs of policing and managing it were becoming too high. The tax itself became known disparagingly as the poll tax, literally head tax. Parallels were made between it and a previous attempt to implement a similar tax, which was actually called the poll tax, in 1381, which famously led to a huge national uprising. Although suppressed, it made subsequent governments avoid this sort of thing like the proverbial plague for pretty much this reason. But this is a podcast about active protest, so I probably ought to talk about that. In the run-up to implementation in England and Wales, a number of protests took place across the country to object to this new tax, the largest of them occurring in London on the 31st of March 1990, supported by pretty much all of those leading anti-poll tax groups. An estimated 200,000 people from all over the country took part. This was originally scheduled for Trafalgar Square in the heart of London, the downside of that being that Trafalgar Square has an estimated capacity of less than a third of that at around 60,000. The organisers didn't quite anticipate when they were arranging it with the police just how many people were likely to turn up, and by the time numbers were realised it was too late to change the planned routing. The protest thus filled up not just the square itself but also a number of the surrounding streets including Whitehall, the heart of the British political centre, and the police moved around to ensure the protesters stayed in the one place and didn't end up occupying more of London than strictly necessary. There were a number of problems with this. Firstly, it meant that a large group of slightly annoyed people were effectively stuck in position without being free to march or even move very much. Secondly, many of the police themselves were decked out in full riot gear in anticipation of trouble, despite the protest being quite peaceful. Finally, conveniently, there was building work going on in Trafalgar Square, which meant construction equipment, tools and raw materials were, shall we say, available. There was a kind of standoff for a couple of hours, with chanting and demonstrations of contempt for the government, while the police tried to edge protesters towards the square. No one's quite sure what happened next, but evidently something spooked the police, who then moved more forcefully into the crowd with horses and riot vans. The protesters responded from being squashed by accessing the building equipment and either defended themselves from or aggressively attacked the police, depending on which side of the story you believe. Bricks were thrown, fires were lit, batons were charged, fights broke out. It all became quite messy and angry. When the police channelled the protesters down particular roads, the protests turned to riots and many of the shops were broken into. Violence and looting continued into the night long after the bulk of protesters had made their way home. In total, over 300 people were arrested and just over 100 people injured across all sides, police, protesters and members of the public who'd been in the misfortune to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, although the violence and the rioting was condemned by almost all sides afterwards, two things did result from this mass demonstration. The first was, in the legal proceedings that took place afterwards, much of the blame for the confrontation was placed directly at the feet of the police and the lack of support, the funding and the equipment that the police had had, suggesting that their reaction was overbearing and needless. Most of those arrested were acquitted. The second was the amount of publicity the riot had achieved in the media, and, when put alongside the civil disobedience and non-payment that occurred once the tax was implemented, gave a very strong impression to even the ruling Conservative Party that the tax was probably not a good idea, 
This was confirmed with opinion polls later in the year that showed Labour with a huge lead and that nearly 80% of people in the country surveyed said they disagreed with the tax. The problem for the government was that this was a new and flagship policy and casting it aside would be a severe embarrassment to them, almost an admission of failure in fact. Ultimately, they decided that the best thing to do would be for the leader to take ultimate responsibility for it all. It was her policy after all. Margaret Thatcher was an unwilling player in all of this, of course, but resignations from the Cabinet, followed by a leadership challenge in the autumn of the same year, forced her hand, and she resigned. John Major, the grey man, took over as Prime Minister, and literally his first policy act in the role was to announce the abolition of the community charge, to be replaced by what was called the council tax, which, although with a slight reflection on household size, was a tax based on the estimated value of the property just like the rates had been. Here then, mass protest and civil disobedience were the primary cause of not just a reversal of government policy, but also the resignation of a popular, or at least populist, leader who had previously been deemed pretty much untouchable. Well, that just about wraps this episode up. Who knows what next time will bring, though I probably ought to talk about travel a bit again. After all, this is nominally a travel podcast. <laughs> Until then, keep pulling down the statues, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited, and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.